0: what's up and welcome back to the real ballers read podcast we are so super excited for today because we have an incredible special guest on someone who was inspiring us right from the beginning of our podcast this is dr eve l ewing welcome dr ewing hi So for your introduction, Dr. Evel Ewing is a writer, scholar, and cultural organizer from Chicago. She is the award-winning author of four books, The Poetry Collection's uh, Electric Arches and 1919, the non-fiction work Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side, and a novel for young readers, Maya and the Robot. She is the co-author with Nate Marshall of the play No Blue Memories, The Life of Gwendolyn Brooks, She has written several projects for Marvel Comics, most notably the Ironheart series. Ewing is an associate professor in the Department of Race, Diaspora, and Indigeneity at the University of Chicago. Her work has been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and many other venues. Currently, she is working on her next book, Original Sins, The Miseducation of Black and Native Children, and the Construction of American Racism, which will be published by One World. Dr. Ewing, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's get right into it. So as Miles and I often talk about, our mom growing up always used to tell us real ballers read. And (laughs) one of the first quotes that really resonated from you was this excerpt from your contribution in Black Futures. And we just wanted to start here to set the tone. You said in Black Futures, I believe that for Black people, reading remains a radical act. And the self determination inherent in choosing what one would like to read—the idea that young people deserve an element of desire, of joy, of autonomy in this regard—is radical as well.
1: Yeah, that is true. (laughs) Yes, so that is what you said. I just wanted to—I just wanted to give it a little shot. You know, I agree with myself
0: (laughs) (laughs) from a few years back. But no, we just wanted to uh, start with this to really ask—you know—how you came to believe in the power of reading, sharing more of your story as a reader and writer.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, You know, in thinking about coming on the podcast, I was like, wow, this is going to be really challenging to think about because reading is something that I, in my own life, my own relationship to reading is something I've very much taken for granted. I was an early reader. Uh, I started reading very young. I started reading when I was about four years old. And so I don't remember a time of not being able to read. And I think that what that unlocks in terms of my early memories is that being able to read immediately invites you to engage in a different kind of inner sense making or inner dialogue that doesn't require the intervention uh, of adults. Um, And so, you know, it allows for you to kind of have conversations in your own head, which I think, I think is really important for everybody. And I think That there are many ways of accessing that that are not only, you know, not only through reading, I think through music, uh, through just interactions with other people. Right. But there's a kind of um, fugitive element to children's inner lives uh, because so much, especially now, so much of what we ask children to do and how we ask them to comport themselves is under the surveillance and control of others. And that is true for all children. Uh, In our culture, I think that's especially true for children of color. It's very true for black children. Um, And it is truer in schools now than it was when I was in elementary school, um, largely because of the kind of amplification of, you know, a neoliberal school regime that um, puts forth the idea that testing and really through testing forms of sort of social control are the best ways that we prepare young people to be successful in our society. And in fact, one of the insidious things is that um, we are actually, we've internalized the idea that that is somehow a form of like civil rights or radical action or even love, right? The idea that um, treating black children in particular with a great deal of harshness, with a great deal of control, with a great deal of strictness in how they spend their time uh, whether they can daydream, whether they can, you know, be lost in their own thoughts, that that is somehow preparing them to be successful in the world. Um, I I didn't mean to go off so off deep into the weeds so quickly in terms of my kind of no, like cool. education we do. We do. education, scholar hat. Yeah. <laughs> let me get back to the question. Um, and so, so I started reading really early and I love reading. I also am sort of resistant at the same time. I, I think my own love of reading is kind of like Almost, but not entirely, but it's partially due to just kind of like the happenstance of life. Right. And what I mean by that is, I really do think that all of us are born, you know, with different ways of moving through the world and different ways that we see the world. And for some people, it's really more kinesthetic. Right. And for some people, it's really more visual. um, And some people are really comfortable moving in their bodies. And I think that we've set up school as a place where. There are very there's a very narrow band of like what kinds of performances of intelligence are celebrated and acceptable, and sure. so I'm of two minds in the sense that on the one hand I absolutely love reading; it's very important to me. But on the other hand, I'm a little bit cynical or or critical of the fact that a lot of my academic success is because I happen to um, be drawn to this one particular thing. You know, like I was not great at sports as a kid. Um, my husband has never let me you know i really regret telling him the story i he he has never let me forget that i went through my entire eighth grade basketball season without ever shooting the ball once um and i was on the court i just wouldn't i was just terrified to shoot the ball and um
0: (laughs) you had um, those assists
1: you know yeah i love that thank you for that asset-based reframing of, of that yeah no but you know and i remember this one particular game it was like the end of the year and you know somebody passed me the ball and i had an open shot and my coach was on the side and he goes, "Eve." your mom is here shoot the ball and i just like, <laughs> panicked and i was like not today it's like you know like enthusiastic chest pass to the next person so you know like that's not my skill set um i really struggle with like spatial motor tasks um if you know uh if you take out like i don't know if you buy something buy a speaker from the store and you have to return it and you have to put it back in the box like the way it came with the styrofoam and like fit it back into the shape and put it back in the box. That is something that I struggle with. I struggle to like rotate objects in 3d in my head. Like there are just a lot of things that I'm not great at (laughs) that I'm, that I'm acutely aware of. Um, But because we live in a society that kind of uploads, that upholds reading and writing as um, very particular, but at the end of the day, quite arbitrary forms of knowledge um, that I, I have thrived from that. That being said, the part of it that is still radical for me is, you know, um, it never escapes me, this very, very basic fact. And it could come across as cliched or hackneyed or whatever, but I really do think about it a lot, right? Black people were forbidden from reading, right? Black people were forbidden from writing. And the kind of political implications of that, the, the metaphorical and poetic, symbolic, but also very real, very literal implications that are just never lost on me. And so therefore, um, my own life, you know, I have, uh, I used to be an English language arts teacher in middle school. I guess many people know me primarily as a writer and maybe secondarily as a scholar, but, um, you know, a lot of my personal identity is also as an educator and as a teacher. And I've taught three-year-olds and four-year-olds. and I taught high school students. and I've taught adults who are incarcerated. And I've taught adults in PhD programs. And I've taught middle school and, and all these different settings. Um, the basic moment of revelation and, again, that kind of uh, fugitive inner meaning-making is just very important to me. And I think it remains kind of like um, magical, mystical, holy, sacred. Like, I I think that that is just really special. I think a lot of the children that are close to me in my life, you know, little cousins and nieces and nephews, each of them, I remember the first time I ever saw them, like, write a word or write their name. I just think that there's something truly special about that. And in many of my classes, although, you know, before we started recording the podcast officially, I was just telling you all that I'm trying desperately to not assign so much in my classes. Mm -hmm. So... So this year I cut it, but in many of my classes, for many years, especially in education classes that I taught, one of the first things I've always had students read was the passage of uh, Learning to Read and Write um, from Frederick Douglass's autobiography in which he talks about learning to read and write. And one of the things we talk about is is very important for me to differentiate the difference between school and education. Um, and education is something that happens in in infinite human context throughout history, right? Not just within a school building, but in settings with family and friends in in the natural world, right? In reflection with oneself, there are so many different ways that education can take place. And what blows me about that Frederick Douglass story is, you know, I'll kind of summarize it. I encourage people to read it. It's very easy to find online. But basically, Frederick Douglass is born as an enslaved person. He's living in Maryland. And to be an enslaved person at that time, what that means is that the entirety of his political, social, economic reality, everything around him, everybody around him reinforces the idea that you are a property, right? That you are not human. And he learns to read, Uh, you know, as 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 folks sometimes did, he learns to read from the wife of his master, from his, his mistress, this woman who owned him. And then the master says, stop teaching him to read, right? It's a bad idea. It's dangerous. So she stops. But at that point, it's too late. And so he starts reading all these things in secret and in private. And he starts reading, you know, about Roman history. And he starts reading about people that are enslaved in Roman times. And he starts to have this deep and profound sorrow in himself. He said, I almost regretted having this knowledge because he could never look at himself the same way. He could never again, any part of him, any small part of him that accepted his condition could could not continue to exist, right? that That there was a, a kind of new understanding of how wrong it was that he should be enslaved. And then the way he teaches himself to write is wild. So he is allowed to kind of run errands to the shipyard and so he he gets in the habit of taking a little bit of food from the kitchen and he meets on these errands he'll meet these uh these young white boys that that themselves are are pretty poor uh don't have a lot going on and so he basically gives them some of his food and he'll he he learns from watching at the shipyard he learns the letters that just stand for starboard and port and fore and aft right because of That's what he sees. They're labeling the parts of these boats as they're building them. Right. So like the starboard parts label S, whatever. So he learns four letters. He's like, okay, I got four. I got four letters. He goes to these kids and he'll be like, I bet you don't know how to write. I know how to write. I bet you can't. (laughs) And the kids will be like, well, you know, you're black. You can't write. He's like, no, I can't watch this. S. Right. He would write like an S. They're like, okay, well, I know a letter too, you know, T. And they would write a letter and he's like, oh, okay, got it, T, right? And basically, like, through scamming, these kids over the course of years (laughs) taught himself to write. And then he starts taking the the school book from the little boy, who little white boy who lives in the house with him, right, and so on. And this took years. And I've often thought to myself, what compels a human being in, again, a social context in which, you know, this is like saying, like, if you work hard enough, this guy is going to be polka dot, right? Like, Everything about the reality that he's in reinforces that this should be an impossibility. And yet something deep inside him as a human being compels him to be on this journey, on this search that he that he pursues with such doggedness and discipline. Now, obviously, this is Frederick Douglass, right? Like he (laughs) in many ways, a very remarkable person. But I always begin my classes with with that or often begin my classes with that story because I want students to think about education and reading and literacy Not as being about like you know which curriculum should we use and what test scores you know what what's the uh, quote unquote achievement gap looking like and you know are you on sixth grade level or fifth grade level or all those kind of technocratic things and I want people to understand it first and foremost as uh, an endeavor of the soul right Uh, something that we as human beings are 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 drawn to for these kinds of uh, you know uh, infinitely unknowable reasons um and so yeah that's that's a little bit of that's the the much longer extended version of that of that quotation that you shared yeah you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I no that's mean, exactly what we were looking for thank you so much yeah that that might be one of the single best answers we have ever gotten to a <laughs> question on, on our podcast can I, I have wanted, one
1: quick caveat yes, I yes please, caveat. Absolutely. <laughs> you know um I've been in working on the book that I'm working on now also thinking a lot about other knowledge systems, indigenous knowledge systems, non-Western knowledge systems. So I want to make clear everything that I'm saying about reading. I, you know, I love reading. We love reading this podcast about reading. Let's talk about reading. But I want to make clear, I'm also just talking about like the pursuit of knowledge, right? And that, right. that part of also what Western society does, again, as we said earlier, is kind of uplift this very narrow band. And the story that I just told, I think it would be just as profound to tell that story about You know, somebody trying to learn something about the tides where they live or somebody trying to learn something about the moon or the, you know, the movement of the stars or, you know, the insects that live where they live or the trees. Right. Or their their own relationships with their ancestors or, you know, that I want to make clear that I'm not only talking about this, this one narrow kind of knowledge. Um, So that's my little. Footnote,
2: but as we can proceed and talk about reading now. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that kind of makes me think of just the whole, you know, Marshall McLuhan idea about what the Gutenberg Press did to us as a society, making us very visual focused, right? Because other knowledge systems really include more sense than just the visual, right? And, right, and I, right. I, I feel over throughout the years of that. You even can connect it to how we're very phone focused now, like that reading brain trained us to to be as glued to our phones as we are now. Um, That's
1: so true. And I think for me, learning to develop some of those other senses has been a really important part of my identity as a writer. Mm
2: -hmm. And I just wanted to ask though, as a follow-up question, I think one of the big ideas that I learned from your book, Ghost in the Schoolyard, is this idea of like frames. And how cold cultural frames like really do create blind spots and affect how we look at what we measure and just affect our biases in general. And so, I wanted to ask you about what you think our name is now around education and reading. Because I think, as we're kind of talking about with the phones and with social media, reading has become even harder in a sense. Mm. Um, so do you think reading is like a fundamental part of fixing edu- edu- education now, or do you do you think there are other solutions there?
1: Yeah, that. thank you for that question. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, also thank you for reading the book. I appreciate that. And, mm-hmm. you know, even in the frame of the frame, <laughs> kind Great. of also reinforces your point, because when we lean on these visual metaphors, even talk about what is... Uh, what we can perceive and what is obscured. Right. So I use this metaphor of the frame and the painting and sitting inside the painting, sitting outside the the painting. And, you know, even a term like, like blind spots or, you know, in um, academia, I've tried to turn away from saying blind review. Right. And and even those kinds of things to think about how we use the metaphor of, of disability and of, of not being able to see as kind of a synonym for ignorance. Right. And so, um, so that's something I've been thinking about myself and it's so baked into our language Um, so, you know, I think that there's a lot, that's such a good question. So I think that one of the frames that shapes the way we think about education now that really often goes, the thing, the thing about these frames, just to kind of like quickly gloss the, the book, which people should check out at your local library or wherever you get your books, um, is that Basically, in this book, I'm saying that I'm talking about the 2013 public school closures in Chicago, which are the largest mass school closures in American history. And one of the the rhetorics that were used to close the schools was the the notion of like, well, these are bad schools, right? The schools are bad. And part part of what I'm trying to interrogate in the book and what I think has become like a recurring theme in my work is like what constitutes a good school or a bad school? Um, what are the notions of goodness? What are the presumptions of goodness and badness that shape these kinds of analyses? And so. I think something I talk about in the book and something I've continued to talk about with folks is the presumption of competition as a necessary heuristic for how our world has to work. Um, I'll say like competition, compulsory work and thinking about knowledge in a vacuum away from any kind of like cultural context um as well as presuming that all people have to access information the same way i'd say those are four there's so many things i could get into but those are four frames that we can just talk about really quickly i already forgot probably three of them so i see jan writing right you might have to get back to me but um so so one is competition right um in 2001 when george w bush passed uh the no child left behind act which you know in many ways transformed the way that education looks in and you know has left the legacy into the present uh it had this very punitive stance where if schools the idea was like okay you get schools to improve through punishment right and and implicitly also competition like uh the schools that are bad are going to close because we're going to not give them you know we're going to we're going to tell them you have to hit these marks by these times and if you don't, we're going to punish you. We're going to sanction you. And if you still can't get it together, your schools is going to shut down. Right. And so there's this idea that the way you get schools to improve is by ba- like basically scaring people. And the presumption there is that if they wanted to get better, they would, but that they haven't been adequately motivated. Right. Um, which I think is a- erroneous presumption in a lot of different ways. Um, and when Barack Obama became president, uh, first they basically started. He was like, OK, no child left behind. We have to do better. We have to do something different. And the replacement that was passed under the Obama administration that was heralded as like the superior alternative was called race to the top. Right. Now, the thing about a race is that everybody can't win. Right. And so so race to the top basically set out schools and, and, and actually states to compete against one another for funding and the the rhetoric around it was very like fun right it was like yeah you know we're all and basically you could compete for these resources by um adopting different policies that the obama administration wanted you know saw as good policies for education now again not to get too like wonky with it part of the reason that that has to happen that way is because um in the united states we don't have like a federal jurisdiction over education in a serious way so the department of education only has the power to use like sanctions or rewards to get states to do something we have a decentralized education system it's different than france or the uk or south africa or countries where someone in the federal government can say this is the curriculum and every kid in the country has the same curriculum there's there's no mechanism for that in the united states it kind of goes against our history as a federalist uh republic um And so as a result, one of the few ways that the Department of Education can get schools to do stuff is by basically saying, we're going to give you money or we're going to withhold money. But that being said, I always thought the frame of race to the top was hilarious because it's like, if you stop and think about it for a second, right, the implication is like, everybody can't win. And there's this different, you know, uh, what if we reframed the way we thought about education as like, that this is that it is possible for not only for all kids to succeed, but for all schools to be good, right? Uh, by whatever definition we use. So so that's one thing I think about a lot is the kind of Im- implicit frame of competition. The second one is, is I think I said, is compulsion, right? So the idea that uh, that we have to make people do stuff, right? We have to make kids do stuff. And I think that, you know, like there are, I used to teach, like I said, I've taught three-year-olds. I've taught 11, 12, 13-year-olds. I think that there is certainly a place for, you know, elder knowledge in our society, I think that there's a place to say, like, especially for, for the purpose of young people's safety, for the purpose of what's best for them in the long term. I think that there are many circumstances we could say, you don't want to do this, but you're going to, I'm going to compel you to do it because um, it's going to be the best for you, right? Whether that's taking a nap or, you know, taking a science class or whatever, That being said, I think that the notion of compulsion is baked into a lot of how schools operate on a day-to-day basis in ways that aren't necessary, where we do assume that we have to kind of punish kids and control kids into doing basic things. But I think that also extends to educators. I remember um, at one point during COVID, uh, early on in the pandemic, um, I want to say like maybe it was 2020, no, it was coming back from the holidays in 2021, I think, you know, my COVID time is all totally screwy like everybody else's. But uh, there were uh, Chicago teachers did like a small scale strike where they're like, we're not coming back to school until we know that there are, that there's going to be testing in place. Right. We're not coming back to school until these basic uh, common sense kind of safety measures have been put into place. And those were the same safety measures that had been put into place in other major school districts around the country. Just basic stuff, just like masks, testing. Right. And uh, this was a big issue. And um, the mayor and the school leaders basically um, canceled all school. They locked teachers out from being able to do remote learning. They're like, "Okay, well, if you won't come back and do it in this particular way, nobody gets any type of school. Right. Teachers literally couldn't get into their the online system, even just to email their students just to check in with them. So and I remember posting about this on Instagram. And, you know, a, a person who I not a person I know personally, but, you know, someone who I think was a well intentioned person, a black woman was like, you know, I really hear what you're saying, but should people just be able to say they don't want to come to work? And I was like, yeah, people should. Right. People, people, people having to come to work like. Compulsively, when they under compulsion, when they you know being compelled to do so when they don't want to is called slavery. <laughs> like that is <laughs> that's literally what slavery is, right? And I'm not saying that like the notion of having to go to work is inherently the same as slavery. But I'm saying that yes, I do believe that people have a right to say my workplace is not safe, right? I do believe people have a right to say like I'm not gonna be there because my workplace yeah. is not safe. I'm afraid that I might literally die. I'm afraid that I might be a, a link in a chain that ends with my neighbor dying or my grandmother dying or you know or uh, or a toddler in my house, you know, being sick. And so um, I think that that basic idea that actually, yeah, people do have, I mean, and I think that this is part of why the last couple of years have seen this explosion in labor organizing and all these things is for the first time, people are like, wait a minute, like we do actually have the right to demand different things. So that's the second thing. What was the third thing I said after compulsion? I already forgot. Uh,
0: No cultural context.
1: Oh yeah. No cultural context. So You know, I think that um, that's one that this is this is not by any means my I mean, none of this is my unique insight, but the notion of culturally responsive pedagogy or relevant teaching and things culturally sustaining pedagogies. These are ideas that have been in, you know, in the ed field for for decades now. Um, And but just very briefly, I think that there's. Uh, that we think about what it means to teach as often being very devoid of this cultural context. Um, Several years ago, uh, I visited a a school on the Yurok reservation in uh, Northern California on the Klamath river. And this was a school. it, It is now closed, which is really sad, but this is a school that had been opened by a member of the tribe who was also an education leader. And she, um, She had this idea where she developed this school where all of the standards that the the school was like, okay, we're going to meet state standards. We're going to meet local standards. We also want our kids to meet the standards of the local community college so that when they're done with this, they can actually get an associate's degree. But we also want our young people to meet cultural standards. And so she actually worked with everybody in the community to say, all right, if this kid is growing up as a member of the Yurok tribe, what do you want them to know? right? Like, what is important to us as a, as a group, as a community, as a tribe? And people said things like, well, the kids should know our language, right? They should treat elders with respect, right? They should um, know how to interact with the salmon, right? That That all those things became baked into how the school actually functioned. And so teachers were not only observing kids on, you know, do you know fractions? Do you know math, right? But actually, like, are you respectful to your elders? Like, that actually became something that was officially part of the curriculum. And then, On the day that I visited, I'll never forget this. I visited this classroom. Everybody's doing math. And in the back of the room, there's just this, you know, older woman. She's sitting in a rocking chair. She's just kind of chilling, doing her thing. She might have been like reading or crocheting or something. And periodically, kids are going up to her and like showing her things and sitting back down. And basically, this woman was like a classroom elder. She was a classroom. She was somebody's grandmother, right? She wasn't there to be an aide. She wasn't there to volunteer. Her job was literally to chill in the room. And (laughs) periodically, kids would go up to her and be like, Look what I did. I'm done. She'd be like, That's great. But, you know, good job, honey. Like, that's great, baby. Right. And, and what does it mean? You know, when I, I talked earlier about learning and education being this ancient thing, it's really relatively recently and in ways that are very much bound up with being in an industrialized society, being in a capitalist society that we've decided that it has to take place in this one particular, very narrow context. And so I would also, you know, I think that, that the frame of, you know, I think one of the reframes that would be very, that is very helpful in in education spaces is to think about what other um, forms of knowledge, forms of context, Um, forms of wisdom can be brought into conversation with reading. And, you know, um, this term funds of knowledge comes from a very famous academic paper um, authored by a scholar named Luis Moll, M-O-L-L, and and several other co-authors. And, you know, just thinking about what do parents know, what do families know, what do elders know? One of my favorite assignments I ever did with my sixth grade students was, uh, we did this oral history assignment, And I had students interview their grandparents. But, you know, a lot of kids didn't have a relationship. So I was kind of getting these like freelance elders. Um, And there was an older woman in our school who was a paraprofessional. She worked with kids who had disabilities. And she was in her 60s. And I hooked her up with one of the students. He interviewed her. And I remember how he looked standing there reading in front of the class about all the things he had enjoyed talking to her about you know she had grown up in arkansas and the foods that she used to eat and you know what it was like for her as a kid and what her school was like and when she moved to chicago and the musicians she used to listen to and I, it's really one of these you know you just have these moments that stand out in your mind of he was he was so proud and he really enjoyed sharing the story and this was a person that he saw every day right she was a school employee it was not a biological relative they, but they were they were fictive kin right they were chosen kin and he, through this assignment, got to see her in a really different way, got to see her through this different context as being a person, as being an elder, and not just like the person who's helping out in the lunchroom or whatever, right? And that that kind of moment can be really powerful. So so context, and then what's the fourth thing?
0: You said uh, making sure that everyone only had access to knowledge through one sp- single way, like standardized. Ah, like
1: yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And also, just because I forgot it doesn't mean I didn't mean it when I said it, because I did. Uh, So thank you, but I knew I had your help. So, um, yeah. So that's the last thing I'll just share is like different ways of accessing knowledge. And so this is one as a college professor that I deal with a lot, um, and that I think you see a lot in kinds of social media conversations and headlines that a lot of folks really think, you know, for example, that audiobooks are not real books, right? Or that having to fidget or engage in some kind of stimming activity or physical activity or pacing or getting up and taking a break or doodling or using a computer, that all of those types of things somehow um inhibit or delegitimize the access uh, access to knowledge. And I just think that that is ableism. And I mean that not as personal critique of those people, but, you know, ableism, much like racism is something that we internalize often without thinking about it. And it's something that all of us are able to, to reenact in different ways that we sometimes don't intend. And I remember I used to be one of these like audio books aren't books type of people. And so I, I remember somebody that I knew many years ago being like, okay, so like, blind people just don't read like that. They just they don't read because they're because it doesn't look the same way as it looks when you do it. Right. And I was like, oh, that's a, don't believe that. Like, that's awful. Right. And that everything doesn't work for everybody. But the idea that with these different technologies that we have available to help more people than ever access different kinds of information in ways that feel real and true and accessible to them, that that is somehow not legitimate in the same way that people used to say, like, American Sign Language is not a language, right? Because it's not spoken. I just think that that's something that we really need to continually challenge. Um, And so, you know, I love printed books. I love reading printed books. But um, I think some of the ways that people are, you know, um, not into ebooks, not into reading electronically, I'm kind of like, you know, if you like it, I love it. Like, to me, reading is not simply the matter of like visually scanning words on a page, but it's actually about making meaning, about making connections, about processing, about all these different types of things that can look a lot of different ways. So those are some quick reframes that I, yeah. uh, that I feel strongly about.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. And, you know, for us, like, I think we feel super grateful for all of the different ways that we've been able to learn and access knowledge, right? I mean, cooking, or dancing, playing sports, right? Engaging with your environment. Um, there are just so many ways, as you talk about, to get an education, right? Um, and for us, a lot of what we say to people about like the importance of books is that it only takes one to really kind of spark uh, curiosity and mm-hmm. affirm that importance of anything that else that you're interested in. And so I wanted to get into your book recommendation for today. Uh, two particular essays. Yeah, uh, because which are both really in the do... same book, I should say. But yeah, these are exactly. my two
1: favorite essays from this book.
0: Exactly. And they really do speak to how books can be one really crucial, important way of getting to know people that have come before us, the people who have made our lives even without us necessarily realizing it. And that is uh, Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, Uh, In particular, the essays poetry is not a luxury and the transformation of silence into language and action. So as a final kind of gift for our listeners, could you share more of your story with Sister Outsider and why those two essays in particular are so meaningful for you? Sure.
1: You know, I um, and I'm kind of mad because I had them just pulled up. And then, of course, I have 750 million tabs and I have to find them again. Of course. I think that it's kind of funny because there are a lot of things that I've read in my life that I have a very clear memory of the first time I encountered them. And for some reason, these two essays, both of which, or just this book in general, you know, which which I love very dearly, I don't remember exactly. It, it almost feels like I've always had a relationship with them. But I think that I discovered both of them for myself when I was in my 20s and one thing that is a big privilege of my life is that all of the work i do involves a lot of continuous learning right that i get to be a continuous learner and one of the things that that has taught me you know so like I, i'm i'm teaching this class right now and one of the things that we're going to be talking about this week is uh is Du Bois and Souls of Black folks, and I'm gonna reread the same thing that I've read over and over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we're gonna talk about double consciousness and we're gonna talk about the veil and like I'm gonna read it again. And I know for a fact that I'm gonna discover something new from it. And and I think that I have to do that because it's my job, right? I happen to have a job that requires me to revisit the same text over and over, but that's a really instructive practice that I invite lots of people to engage in, right? Like you don't have to be a professor to do that. And I think that, um, that there are so many things, there are so many texts that have a lot to teach us upon repeat visits. And so these two essays are essays that I've read countless times. And every time I go back to them, I get something new from them. Um, the, the phrase poetry is not a luxury is, uh, you know, I think as well as your silence will not protect you, um, I think are two of the the kind of quotations that that Audrey Lord is is maybe you know I don't think she's I don't think she's as well known as she should be but to the extent that people know her those are two of her better known quotations but I really encourage people to read them in context because I and that's something that I also always advocate like. You know, if people see if you see a quotation that you like or something that you heard, I always try to go actually look up the original source. And I would say a lot of times I'm often surprised by the context. I'm like, oh, it's interesting that people cut off this part. Right. Like people don't ever finish this part, you know, (laughs) Um, like that's fascinating. Like how, you you know. And so anyway, um, I think that for Poetry is Not a Luxury, you know, a lot of my work um, and this is, you know, in line with the conversation we've been having, a lot of my work has been to attempt to live as a writer in the model of some of the writers who were most influential on me, including Gwendolyn Brooks and um, Sandra Cisneros and uh, other you know great Chicago writers, um, for whom being a writer as a vocation doesn't mean literally sitting in a room and writing. It actually means like being a person in the world who engages in a kind of, series of public literacy projects or who who advocates right for for reading and writing and for people and for communities and that's kind of the the type of writer that I've always wanted to be and I think that that image of what a writer is is in contrast to some of the ways that poetry is sometimes understood in our society as being something that is very elite something that's very inaccessible um something that is for some people and not other people and so I love the phrase poetry is not a luxury, which is also the title of this essay, um, both because it makes a claim about what is, but it also makes a demand about what could be. Right. So to me, it's kind of a retort to people saying like, well, you know, poetry is only for these people or those people, Um, to say poetry is not a luxury is to say no. Actually, poetry is for everybody, but it also invokes and demands its own enactment through the phrase, right? Meaning, like by saying poetry is not a luxury, you're also saying poetry should not be a luxury, right? Poetry cannot be a luxury, um, and you know maybe I'll I'll read uh, this particular. Should I read this passage from this essay? Yeah, cool? for okay. sure.
0: Thanks.
1: Cool. So here she's talking particularly about her identity as, you know uh, as a black lesbian woman. Um, and she says, at this point in time, I believe that women carry within ourselves the possibility for fusion of these two approaches. Actually, I'm going to go back even further. Sorry.
0: Context, context.
1: Context <laughs> When and I'm going to ask people to pay attention to this first part because it's very important to me as a scholar as well. When we view living in the European mode, only as a problem to be solved. We then rely solely upon our ideas to make us free. For these were what the white fathers told us were precious. But as we become more in touch with our own ancient, black, non-European view of living as a situation to be experienced and interacted with, we learn more and more to cherish our feelings And to respect those hidden sources of power from where true knowledge and therefore lasting action comes. At this point in time, I believe that women carry within ourselves the possibility for fusion of these two approaches as keystone for survival. And we come closest to this combination in our poetry. I speak here of poetry as the revelation or distillation of experience. Not the sterile wordplay that too often the white fathers distorted the word poetry to mean, in order to cover their desperate wish for imagination without insight. For women, then, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams toward survival and change, first made into language, then into idea then into more tangible action. So I'll stop there. Uh, Actually, no, one more line. The line right after that. (laughs) It's bar. It's nonstop. But this whole essay is like four pages and it's nonstop. Last line. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. That's a mic drop right there, right? So like for me, I mean, I could... you can see, and maybe people can hear my voice, like I'm experiencing this anew again. I'm like, yeah, like every time, you know, like every time I'm experiencing it anew because to me, this is an invocation that honestly I need basically every day, right? And I think that she's writing from her position again as a black person, as a lesbian, as as a woman, right? She's talking about the intersection of those three identities. But I think that what she's doing is not meant to be exclusive it's meant to be inclusive right and it's an it's it's it goes back to miles's question about frames right she's inviting us to take on a different frame she's inviting us to say okay i think therefore i am that's one way of seeing the world right where is the place for feelings right and and she's putting forth poetry as she as she puts it poetry is not being about mastering these forms and these crafts and learning these technical terms those things can all be great right but it's actually saying This is an ancient practice that allows us to access something about our own wisdom and to uplift experience as a meaningful way of of seeing the world and shaping community. And then towards survival and change. Right. From language to idea to action. Right. To me, this is such a vital reconfiguration of what poetry is um, that is you know, really about how are you going to transform the world, right? One of my favorite quotations is is Sandra Cisneros, another amazing poet who said, we do this because the world we live in is a house on fire and the people we love are burning in it, right? The world we live in is a house on fire and the people we love are burning in it. And therefore, language has to become idea, has to become action. So that's like, and you know, for folks who haven't read this essay, the whole joint is like, literally three pages long and yeah. the the density of the bars of the excerpt that i just read is non-stop from beginning to end like it has no skips right as it's no just like <laughs> it's just like it's it's almost overwhelming uh to read it's i i'm geeked about it i'm gonna read the whole thing again later um and then i know we're a little short on time but um the other essay that i'll briefly mention is the transformation of silence into language and in action. And again, you can get both these essays are widely available online, but they're collected in the book Sister Outsider. Um for folks that are able to do so economically, I, you know, uh just want to note that like um buying books, if you're able, if you can't buy books, that is totally cool. And that's why we have libraries and we and also people should like form community libraries and borrow books from each other and share books and, and all that. If you are able to buy a book, um purchasing books when that author is not alive that money goes to their estate which means it goes to their family it goes to protecting their legacy it goes to taking care of their archives it goes to making sure that their house is not flooded out and i just want to put a plug in for that because there are some very very famous black people who literally transformed our society from you know malcolm x to august wilson to duke ellington you know um who uh their families are not eating off that legacy, right? The rest of our whole culture is eating off that legacy and their families are not, their houses are not. You know, I always say like you can travel whatever, you can go to whatever random small town anywhere in America. And if there's a dude who invented like a new way to transport butter, like he invented <laughs> a butter truck, you can go to like the Butter Truck <laughs> Museum, right? And they've like, they, you know, like there's the Butter Truck Museum Society and they preserve the house and they have a tour and a docent and a gift shop. And, you know, you go to Malcolm X's last standing home in Roxbury and it is and there's nothing. It's falling apart. Right. And his family has been trying to raise money for that for years. Fred Hampton's house here in Chicago. Right. There's so many examples of this. So that's just a plug. Like if you are able to buy books, buy books. And even if that person is not alive, like that is also about sustaining their family. And for myself as an author, part of why I do the work that I do is I, you know, I do hope that my family is going to be taken care of when I'm not around anymore. And so please buy people's books. Anyway, that being said, so, so this book uh, or this essay, um, "Transformation of Silence into Language and in Action," one of the things she says, I'll just read this this passage here. Uh, and and for context, also, uh, Audrey Lord passed away very young of cancer. She transitioned very young of cancer. We all hurt in so many different ways, all the time, and pain will either change or end. Death, on the other hand, is the final silence, and that might be coming quickly now without regard for whether I had ever spoken what needed to be said or had only betrayed myself into small silences while I planned someday to speak or waited for someone else's words. And I began to recognize a source of power within myself that comes from the knowledge that while it is most desirable not to be afraid, learning to put fear into a perspective gave me great strength. I was going to die, if not sooner than later, whether or not I had ever spoken myself. My silences had not protected me. Your silence will not protect you. But for every real word spoken, for every attempt I had ever made to speak those truths for which I am still seeking, I had made contact with other women while we examined the words to fit a world in which we all believed, bridging our differences. And it was the concern and caring of all those women which gave me strength and enabled me to scrutinize the essentials of my living. So I'll stop there. Okay, okay, wait wait, I do the same thing. I gotta jump. If you jump forward <laughs> two paragraphs, she says, And this is a question I think everybody should ask themselves all the time. What are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence? I will stop there for real.
0: All right, let's go. Wow. Uh, Dr. Ewing, thank you so much for sharing some of your story with sister outsider and thank you so much for being on our podcast. This was literally thank a dream you. come true. Um, thank you, know, you for we-
1: housing my ramblings. <laughs> oh, for sure.
0: <laughs> no, we're ready for, you know? Um, but yeah, for our listeners, this has been real bars read with Dr. Eve L. Ewing. Um, thanks so much for listening and please as soon as possible, check out sister outsider and all of Eve Ewing's work. Um, from her children's book, Maya and the Robot, to her poetry, The Ghost in the Schoolyard, and more coming out soon. Uh, Dr. Ewing, thank you so much for your Thanks,
1: time. Thank you, Take care of yourselves yeah. and hope to see you again soon.